Welcome, dear listeners, to another Finger Guns spoiler special podcast, this time with a bit of a twist. I have joining me today my Thompson twin, Joshua. Hello. Sorry, I forgot. I had to speak <laughs> at that moment. <laughs> yeah, gotta look, gotta look up. I was like, yeah, that's me. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> that is me. Can confirm my name. <laughs> yeah. Um, and joining us today, we have a very special guest, Pietro Rigi Riva, uh, game director of Saturnalia and co-founder of Santa Regione. So welcome, Pietro. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining us. We've been looking forward to this for quite a while and uh, it's been in the pipeline for a couple of weeks now, but we're super excited. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, of um, course, me too. <laughs> um, so for listeners, um, you've probably heard me especially talk about Saturnalia, uh, the game throughout most of last year. I was very glowing in my praise for it, which we'll get into. Um, so to have you here is really special for us because myself and Josh as well, I'm sure will attest, um, you know, Saturnalia was one of our personal favourites of 2022. It was my personal game of the year. That's how much I adored it. Uh, um, so, yeah, we just wanted to kind of introduce you and your kind of game itself. So in terms of your role at the studio, could you just kind of tell us a bit about kind of what your studio is, what you kind of personalise in, just to kind of get our ball rolling, really? Well, uh, yeah, so Santa Regione is a, a very tiny studio we founded in Milan uh, uh, back in 2010. We actually uh, initially like made it into like a company so that we could uh, sign off the rights for our first game, which was a board game uh, mm -hmm. called Escape from the Islands in Outer Space. And then from there, uh, we can, it kind of like became uh, our job, our main thing. Uh, and and eventually it grew and like we made bigger and bigger projects, but we've always kept a sort of like a, like a, I don't want to say improvised, but <laughs> probably like a, a specialized uh, per project um, structure in the sense that uh, we, there is very, very few of us okay. and we work remotely. And then when we, you know, we, we, we we start like working on bigger things, like we, we put together a team for the project. And 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 typically with people that have never done video games before. Okay. Because yeah, that's it's <laughs> quite an uh, interesting approach to it. <laughs> it is, it is. It has some 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 positives and, and negatives as you can imagine. Well, the negative part is of course that that every time you're like you can like teach everyone the entire pipeline because you know they can come from TV, cinema, theater, uh, maybe 3D, but not 3D for games, stuff like that. Okay. And then you kind of like, you know, uh, <laughs> tell them about, you know, how, how you make video games. But uh, the good part is that they offer really fresh um, perspectives to game creation. And they really don't feel constrained by a lot of, you know, the, the design um, conventions that we've grown uh, accustomed to. I guess they're kind of free from, I guess, the structure of what normal game development would be. I suppose would that be right? Or yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's exactly the thing. And 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 with Saturnalia specifically, I think I think it's very evident when you when you think about its um, art director, um, Marta Gabas. She's a sonographer uh, that worked in theater, in advertisement, uh, works now in cinema. Mm -hmm. And she she's very much not a, a, a video game player, and that never worked on on video games before. But we saw her portfolio, and we're like, "Hey, this 
person like really gets space in an interesting way and like designing space where interesting things happen. And so, yeah, we started working with her and, and, and basically she didn't just like give the, the look of the game, but it's architecture, it's space, it's level design really, but it, it comes from a very, very much like a, like a theater stage design perspective rather than level design. And I think you can, you can see that a little bit in, in the game. Definitely. So I guess we have them to thank for the scares and the horror that we were put through while playing the game, I suppose. <laughs> for sure. Like a lot, a lot of like even the inspirations from, you know, the art style and, you know, the moods, the visual moods that the game creates. It's, it's her work. And, you know, uh, you know, there is, of course, you know, the drawing from um, the, the Jalo genre in cinema and, uh, expressionist architecture and stage design and then there is you know a tradition of i guess italian horror comics that we also owe a lot to uh, but she was like, the conduit of all of these inspirations and like transforming them into what you actually see on the screen amazing i mean it's pretty special kind of graphically i think myself and josh i don't know if you want to chime in with this as well but i found the graphic style superb you know it was just such a different graphical artistic kind of view to a lot of games i'd played that year i don't know if you found the same josh but no yeah definitely i think um kind of the like you said the architecture of all the buildings um and i read online that you've kind of taken inspiration from real life places in um in the country that it's based in um and then kind of develop that on with the expressionist um artwork and the uh, the kind of brutalism structure of um buildings as well uh and so it's it's well i'm just trying to say it's like kind of um obviously you've got the architecture and the art style as well um is there because i think color is quite an important um feature in in the game itself um the colors kind of represent different um I guess emotions that the players are going through or, or how the player is supposed to see what safety is and what horror uh, and what the scary parts is um the use of color is it kind of like part of the character's emotions or is it meant to be kind of like the player emotions and what kind of and is there kind of more to it with how the use of color for you in the game when you're making it um so the, the way we approached color was, yeah, as you said, like trying to create a, kind of like a dictionary of meaning for each color palette. And we started by, you know, thinking about the game in terms of um, their characters and the characters' um, objectives and the characters' fears and how each zone of the map would be specifically connected to each of, of these characters. And so we basically created a palette for each of them. And then if you pay attention, <clears throat> you will notice that every time you're in a place that is particularly significant to, for example, Anita's um, quest and um, plot, uh, then at all the buildings are have this like yellow, dark yellow tone. That makes so much sense. Like yeah. like the church and the house, and, and we did the same. So sort of like like uh, subliminally kind of like bring you since you you are so free to you know, do 
which is something I guess we should have mentioned, but you're free to do any quest, any mission, any puzzle with any character, and they will all react. But still, it's undeniable that some stuff is more relevant to um, a character because of their past history or because of their personality. And so to kind of bring you into that mood of that particular storyline, we used color code that way. And um, I guess it's also worth mentioning that uh, contrary to most uh, video games, um, we do not have any color information in the textures of the game or in the models. Oh. Like the, all the 3D art is, is black and white. So yeah. all the color that you see in the game is uh, post-processing. It's through lightning and, and additional post-processing that it, it's then colored. So we can do also some dynamic stuff like, um, you know, smoothening between one plate and the other as you move between places and stuff like that. And, and really, you don't really notice it because... Uh, in reality, well, like when when there is like a really uh, colored light in a place, that you lose the information about the actual color of the things that you're looking at. So it it ends up kind of looking a little real, not real as in you know realistic, but real as in if this was a, a theater play and this was a stage and we I, 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 in a, and, and there was a red light like that, it, things would look like that. Yeah, yeah. it it kind of like goes back to that again, tradition of um, expressionist uh, stage design that doesn't aim for realism, but exaggerates, you know, these traits to give meaning to the places. And it's the same thing that is applied to uh, the structure of the architecture that, as you said correctly, we we were, so um, we we did this long um, um, location scouting in Sardinia where the game takes place. We went there for seven days. uh, with a van and 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 the Sardinian Film Commission, which is this um, public regional office that basically usually collaborates with international and national film productions to kind of like do the location scouting and also put uh, international crews and in, international productions in touch with uh, local uh, professionals and crews. Um, so that when, for example, when they make uh, Mission Impossible and and James Bond, that they need the, those. Um, car chases that are usually take place somewhere in Italy. The they usually collaborate with, yeah, <laughs> with these kind of offices to, to to set things up. And and we were their first video game that they were doing uh, that way. So they brought us to the island nice. and they gave us a location manager and and a driver. And we went in these seven days, almost twenty four hours, uh, visiting places, taking pictures, making videos, recording audios, and then. Uh, Marta kind of like put all this material together to create the fictional town of Gravoi and kind of like reread uh, each of the individual buildings that we wanted to place in the game so that, you know, it, it would give you a hint of the real place, but also kind of like distort it so it doesn't quite make sense and has these very narrow stairs that don't lead anywhere. And it's never like we avoided uh, all the explicit like, oh, this stair is you know leads to a wall how mysterious <laughs> it's it kind of like it, it, it never it, it's never explicit like that but it definitely feels like this this place is fucked up like it, it, it's very unpleasant to yeah. walk through and mm-hmm. to and to visit and you know there is no bathroom in this house maybe you'll notice maybe not <laughs> yeah. it's, um it's that level of discomfort and in reality like some 
some places in these villages are really because they're like built on top of, of each other and on top of various iterations that are reparations that are not made by architects but just made by people because they need to so you actually end up with situations like that where you have like two stairs where one stops at the middle of the other and continues straight yeah. into a road that's not fictional that that actually happens but maybe not as often and not as compactly as it does in our village that is very propositally styled like a, you know a, a architectural nightmare and a labyrinth i think for me that was one of the biggest things i both loved and loved hating about playing this game <laughs> was that i'd run down an alleyway and then i'd be like shit i've got nowhere to go i'm stuck like what do i do now <laughs> and then one of the big features of the game is obviously the roguelike mechanics and the fact that the village shifts and changes and buildings will move around and i've played this game through like four i think i was on my fifth run yesterday wow. and each, each time i've played it i've been like where is the town hall why does it keep disappearing from me and then i'd go down an alleyway that i thought oh yeah that leads here and then i'd run down it when the creature was chasing me only to then get killed because i'd run down into a dead end and i was like this is horrifying because it's so claustrophobic and it's so intertwining that I would get lost in the middle of it and I couldn't figure my way around. And I guess one of my big questions was, what was the kind of inspiration for how you managed to come up with those roguelike mechanics for those elements of the village and how you kind of made it intertwine so effectively across multiple runs? Well, uh, I guess the, the, the starting point, the design starting point of all of that was how do we how do we keep the pressure high in terms of like making you not want to die <laughs> <laughs> if we remove uh, an aspect that it's very uh, common in video games that they particularly dislike which is uh the usual convention by which when you lose in a game um especially like in a single player video game what you have to do is retry uh, a, a section, a, a sequence of actions, right? Um, typically, like you, you go halfway through whatever it is that you're doing, a level, a mission, and then you fail, and you've got to start from the beginning. And um, I never really liked that, but especially you know, as I as I age, I really do not appreciate <laughs> like having, especially because I'm I'm, I'm particularly bad at, at video games. So I really do not appreciate like going through the same sequences again and again and mm -hmm. you know and, and I specifically i think the horror genre came up with some genius um solutions to this problem uh in terms of like how do we you know put we we, we create a relationship between the fear of dying and the fear that is in the horror in the game and the fear of losing progress mm -hmm. and for example you know original resident evil uh, uh you know converting uh, save states into a consumable uh, resource uh, through the increments that, you know, absolutely genius because you have this pressure that you're feeling like, should I save now? Should I, you know, preserve this thing? But if I keep this thing with me, it's gonna, uh, you know, occupy a, a slot in my, in my in limited amount of items that I can carry. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to continue that uh, tradition of innovating in the genre. And we kind of changed uh, the paradigm to, not losing progress, but losing direction. So mm -hmm. you would keep everything that you've done so far, all the missions and the puzzles of the progress, but suddenly you don't know where you are. Yeah. And and to do that, to do that, it really needs to work in the sense that it, it, you really need to get lost. 
right? Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, you everything needs to be there still. So there was these two guiding factors of like making sure you were lost and making sure that everything was still you know achievable and um, within reach uh, within the progress that you've made so far in the game in terms of like the puzzle progression and the tools Metroidvania kind of like structure mm -hmm. of the game. So we had. And, and that's where uh, part of our collaboration with this board game design studio came in. Uh, we, uh, okay. Uh, so this is a studio called Horrible Guild uh, that we've been friends with for 10 years. And um, their founder also co-founded part of the development of the game. Uh, they also contributed this design that is very much board game inspired of, of thinking uh, of the village as uh, octagonal tiles that rotate okay. and shift and kind of like move vertically uh, in, in three dimensions so that because each tile acts like entrances and exits at different levels. Mm -hmm. And then there is a technological aspect to it of you know doing pathfinding and making sure that each each location is reachable from each other location. So there is always paths that become available uh, that never create an impossible labyrinth. Um, yeah. So these are the two main, I guess, ingredients to that uh but yeah it definitely it um you know i when i play the game i still get sometimes like i, I have no it's not just that i don't know where things are because that's obvious but i also get lost in the strategy of finding things and <laughs> yeah. i and i end up with configurations that i didn't know were possible like i can't believe that the school is locked behind this thing here now <laughs> and so that gave me hope uh, for the game as i was testing it for many years that you know we had something special going on sure. there um but yeah yeah so still still happens even to our uh, lead qa uh, who's played the game i don't know for how many hundreds of hours <laughs> they still uh, sometimes get lost but i've seen some some people um uh, speed running the game in an hour and a half online wow. i'm talking about 100 percenting the game not fresh run of it yeah, and they have really good, like, if they fail, like, they get a bad seed, they sort of, like, kind of, like, stuck again, because, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. they can recognize, they see things that they don't see in the way that, that the village is configured, so, that you know, there might, there might be some strategies to doing, you know, good run, but they haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> that makes me feel a bit better. My, uh, my best friend was yesterday, I managed to do 95% of it in two hours, and I escaped. And that's my that, fastest. That's run. really good. Yeah, I think that's uh, where I'll be quite happy to uh, keep as my, <laughs> my my trophy limit, I suppose. And I think that's the magic, isn't it? Is um, we were talking about it when you were talking about the game for like your game of the week or whatever on the mm. on the Finger Guns podcast. I was just like, <clears throat> the aspect that there is no safe space um, if you if you start again if you die is like the the only crutch in any survival horror game is no, is when you've completed it playing through it again you know where's what's where and stuff like that and i think that just completely it obviously throws it on its head and like the whole game is never safe like you never know uh what's going to happen next um is there anything in the game that you kind of like took out to make it a little bit more stress free or did you think did you keep going with adding element different elements to make it more stressful to experience with, with the survival horror. Oh no, there is a lot of stuff going on um under the hood. 
mm. that kind of like tries to keep the uh, frustration <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> a base in the sense that, you know, you could make a game like this uh, infinitely hard, right? Like mm -hmm. you could, you know, reduce the amount of resources and like have the creature constantly be hunting you. So there is like this AI engine going uh, behind the scenes that checks a number of things like how long it was since you last died, you changed characters, one of your characters was captured, you made progress in a puzzle. You know, you almost reached a place that you've been looking for for a certain amount of time. At that point, we're like, yeah, no, we, we shouldn't, you know, be, call the creature now. We'll so leave we, you alone. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. Like we, we did a lot of play tests and we got, you know, information, you know, not the, you know, the, the AAA data-driven play tests. We don't have, you know, the resources for that, but it just like looking at people and seeing when they would be like, the, you know, there is a, a point where you, you get an encounter with the creature and it feels cool. It, you, you know, you almost got something and then it, it came up and then you have to run away. And that's fun if it happens once, but if it happens twice or, or three times in a row, <laughs> you really feel that the game is like preventing you from enjoying it. So uh, we noticed that through our playtest, and then we added some uh, some checks, uh, some easier to implement, some harder to. Okay. But we do a lot of evaluation uh, behind the scenes to make sure that you know there is a right balance of you know uh, difficulty and encounters so that you know it's still it will still surprise you it will still scare you but also kind of like encourages you to to make progress so yeah i, I would say that probably 50 percent of the design challenges were exactly as you said trying to like create a less stressful uh situation also because as you know as principle in principle we did uh you know say the thing that we're like no place in the map is safe you know even places that look like they're safe purposely like they reveal themselves not to be mm -hmm. but you know and that's and that's cool because you know it, it, it kind of like subverts expectations in that sense because there is like um a tradition of horror games that they teach you some stuff and then you know you discover that, that, that there can be uh, other dynamics at work but uh, for the things that you don't see, then, then we definitely want to, you know, uh, keep control to 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 give a good uh, rhythm, good pacing uh, to the game. Definitely, because I think one of the big things I found in my playthroughs, especially my first one when I was kind of doing the preview build, is I got to a certain stage and the creatures started putting out my fires around the the town, mm -hmm. and I was like, I've got no matches left, and all the fires are are all gone. <laughs> What, what do I do now? And I was like, oh my God. And the feeling of like panic of something that I come to rely on, obviously the village hadn't reshuffled. So I was still in like the map I knew, but now the map I knew I couldn't see very well at all. So I was kind of running around with only that little bit of light that kind of emanates of your character. And it's things like that, that I found so effective that most horror games don't get me with. Cause even though the lighting is superb and it's dark, you still kind of know what's coming and when but even with things like little touches like that, as you progress, like things just get that bit more difficult. And I said to Josh, because um, I played on the the standard difficulty and I did the, the next difficulty up the hardcore one. Um, going into the mines on those difficulty levels was like hell on earth. Like it was one of the most terrifying experiences. Whoever designed those mines deserves like all the praise in the world because I haven't been as like petrified of a game area in a long time. They were awful. <laughs> I'm sorry and glad. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I guess I kind of wondered what the philosophy was. Was there like with the mines, did you go into a bit of like a different design mode in order to make that as like intimidating as possible for the player? Or because I always felt a sense of dread of like, I know I need to go in the mines and I really want to take any other route I can, but I've got no other choice. So was that like an intentional choice to make them quite imposing in that way? Well, uh, yeah, I guess it came organic. Like it wasn't at the beginning of the development, we were thinking of the mines kind of like as a like a separate area sort of mm -hmm. like the castle say yeah but then we understood that we wanted to have uh kind of like um a, a sort of like a, <laughs> maybe it's is it, boring as i say it but sort of like a an uh, upside down version uh, yeah. of of the village where you know would still have some of the main rules and let you traverse from the main uh, uh, locations of the village and offer some advantages, but also you know uh, bringing a completely different rhythm and gameplay to it. Um, one of the reason is because we knew that a, a lot of the story progression and puzzle progression had to happen mm -hmm. on on the village level. Yeah, and so for the underground to be interesting also because there is like a smaller variety of locales and and things you can find that we wanted a, a very radically different approach to how you traverse it and that um we already had this mechanic prototype of like now you are in complete darkness which in the game is uh, there is not not even the sky and the moon is kind of like offering a limited amount of light around yeah. you, and it's completely darkness, and so your character panics in this in this situation. And we use that in a number of puzzles, and then we're like, "Hey, what if there was not an entire?" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to ruin your life for the whole area. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's that's basically how it, it uh, how it it came to be. Um, I guess. So I don't know if it's interesting enough philosophically in terms of like how we approach it, but it's it's sort of like happened, and then um, yeah, and then we 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 really liked uh, what we had and the way that you know you could manage you know lights and, and create these points of light that you can run between, and yeah. it it offers like a new way to. To use matches that you use, you know, to further explore and and, and open more uh, uh, fixed light source in the map. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that answers the question really. Uh, it, it answers but, yeah. it for me because <laughs> yeah, that that was the part of the game that I think got me the most in terms of like the horror element because I was just so whenever I was in the mines, I couldn't think about anything else and just getting what I needed to do and get out as quickly as possible. And even playing like, you know, mainstream games like Resident Evil, Silent Hill, Dead Space, even the sense of horror is not quite the same because, you know, there's something that's going to come out at some point. But in the minds, it's so organic and you're just trying desperately to get out because it's so effectively imposing. Um, so as much as I it was like horrifying, it was great. There is um, it's a tradition in not necessarily just horror games, like having you know, building the, the the personality of a space so that you, you feel you feel drive to the thought the thought of going there, 
Uh, I'm thinking about you know demon souls, dark souls. Yes. Uh, when you you're thinking you know of a swamp or an underground or a, a, a tower of latrine, like a, a place that is not lit and you have to go through to get out somewhere. And I think I think that was probably uh, an inspiration, an influence. Um, even even the original, I guess maybe more like the. Um, 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 2003 remake of uh, Resident Evil for GameCube. It had that underground part where, like, I think monsters change, and I and I remember having this feeling of like, oh no, to do this part of the puzzle, I have to go back there, right? <laughs> and and I think that there's some of it in it. Awesome, but yeah, they were like my favorite and my most despised part of the game for the same reason. I loved how incredibly designed they were. But I hated having to go in them every time. <laughs> so you said that the mines were right at the start of the game making process. Um, obviously, you've got a whole backstory going on um, that you're kind of picking up the pieces of. Um, where did you work from from the story point? Did you kind of start from the history going towards the present, or was it a bit of both? Or were you kind of just like picking at pieces as and when it felt? like it made sense to you during the development? We started thinking about the story of the game very early on as we pitched our first concept for the game to the European Union for this um, uh, prototype um, prototype funding program called uh, Creative Europe mm-hmm. to, to, to access this uh, fund that basically um, gives you up to 150,000 uh, euros uh, on a 50 on 50% of a of, of the budget to produce an initial prototype for a narrative game is basically what's the the creative europe funding program is and and as we were applying for this program we uh, had to include a lot you know of our thoughts and design ideas for the story of the game and out intertwined with the with the gameplay elements. So from the beginning, we started with this idea that there would be a central plot that would be the story of the village, and then we, at you know, at the same time, we developed the story for five different characters. It initially, was more like ten different characters. Oh wow! Um, yeah, and then and and these stories would kind of like happen in the village at different times because you know as you play the game you realize that you're really discovering things about two timelines right there's the 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 present and there's the present which is 1989 Mm -hmm. and then there is you know the the previous generation sort of like the 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 previous team um and they you know we we work on each of these character storylines and now they intertwine with the main uh with the main village story and the story of the ritual that is at the at, at the core of it, and then as we were um, uh, working through the game, these characters kind of like merged with each other, and you know their stories became more intertwined, and we you know figured out ways to make you know crucial plot points also be reflected in, in important um, uh, important situations in the in the story and uh, of the village. And and that's how it because it became one thing. And uh, you know, through that process, it helped us, you know, finding uh, the places that we needed in the village as well. There was a, a point, which I don't think it happens very often in games, where we had uh, modeled a house 
specifically the house next to the pharmacy, which belongs yes. to the hunter. Yeah. So that we had this like a, almost like a real life situation where we had modeled like interiors for that house, just the walls and the and the ceilings and and the floors, and they were textured and there and ready. But we didn't know what we needed to put there. Like it was almost an accident, like that the three D <laughs> artist built the interior of the house that was not planned to have an interior. But then we needed, you know, a place for all that story to happen, and we're like, "Hey, we had we have that building that we haven't used. <laughs> yeah, we can place it, yeah. things there." So it's kind of like it was like moving inside this, you know, apartment that it pre-existed uh, within the game, and then you know, do set dressing for it to be, and but yeah, I don't think very many games are are built like that, um, <laughs> but definitely, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, we started with uh, stories that were related to the characters, and in particular, we wanted to figure out a, a way to express fear through a conflict uh, of the that these characters have with the with the society they exist in, and mm -hmm. and this village in particular. So. Uh, without you know spoiling too much or going to because you know these things are like when you lay them down and and and, and come sort of like and explain them they kind of lose their uh, interest. The uh, luster, but, yeah. yeah, but you know we you know we wanted each of them to have you know a reason uh, to you know be hated and sort of like hate this place and to have a reason to run away from it and also an important reason to be. Uh, impossibly tied to it, and you know those were you know leading um, uh, sort of like leading structures that we built the story around. We, we we knew that we had to have those elements, and then we started from the characters' uh, personalities and their uh, backstories to build on to like what the relationship with the village would be and what would be you know the main thing that would drive their intentions and that eventually turned up into being their main sort of like quest so they they all have their own objective in very gamey form but that comes from you know the way we've written them so that they have something that they need to do in this village before they can run away basically yeah i think um the idea of like their conflict really came across when I did my second, I think my first playthrough, I was just surviving the game and I don't really think <laughs> I took a lot of it in too much. And then I played it through again and I was reading like a lot of the notes. I pieced together everything. I really love how you've done like the, the clues like page and how it all ties together and how they all link. Cause then when I could read through it at the end of the game and be like, right, this all links together. This makes sense for this person, whatever. And one of my, kind of queries is a lot of horror games do tackle quite like dark themes you know whether it be mm. things like kind of self-harm or suicide or could be murder rituals you know there's a lot of dark stuff typical in horror games and i kind of wondered obviously saturnalia does go into some quite dark stuff in places particularly i'm thinking with kind of claudia's story mm -hmm. um and gabriel and even with anita and damiano you know their story's quite kind of it they end quite in dark ways i suppose yeah um so I wondered how much you kind of leaned into the idea of we want this to be quite a dark kind of difficult theme based story and how much, if any, you kind of pull that back from that at all, if you wanted to make it a bit more accessible for other people. I didn't know if there was like a balance that you came to with that at all. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
So yeah, so there's uh, two things. So first, I guess from a design standpoint, we wanted the game to be uh, playable and pleasant to play, even if you did not want to en engage with the story. Mm -hmm. uh, and that came, I guess, from our experience with our previous game, which was called Wheels of Aurelia, which was, you know, uh, <laughs> um, political visual novel set in the 70s that was dressed up like an arcade racer. Yes. And in that game, really, if you didn't, you know, care about the, the themes that we were talking about, there was very little left uh, to enjoy in the game. And we didn't want it to be the case and we, with Saturnalia. And so we built the game so that it would be a very, to me at least, very enjoyable survival horror with interesting atmosphere uh, that you could play through and you kind of like switch off your brain, just like solve the puzzles and reach the end and escape. And that's the re one of the reasons why we have a button for dialogue that you can completely sort of like ignore <laughs> for, for the whole duration of the game. But if you do want to engage, then we wanted, you know, to kind of like reflect on, you know, the, 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 the fantasy horror elements versus the real world horror elements. And how, you know, as you, as you play, you really, you, you really understand like how, you know, sort of like the creature is the least of the problems. Yeah, because uh, I felt that. I came to the end of two of their stories and I was like, what What am I supposed to be scared of here? Because now I'm scared of like what their histories are. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. It's really like, it's a, yeah. even the, the creature story is very tragic, right? Mm. But uh, I do feel like a lot of uh, horror games kind of like playing to more serious themes or shock effect and mm -hmm. kind of a bit gratuitously and so uh we try to keep it subtle i guess although it's hard to argue when you have like a scene when there is like a doll hanging from a tree <laughs> i understand <laughs> i understand that and it's my uh like you know, we had to play with horror tropes. So mm -hmm. it was, again, it, 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 it's a difficult play between, you know, sort of like recognizing that we were making uh, a genre game and that the genre game had some specific stylistical and thematical elements that we had to have in our game to create a certain like match between the expectations and uh, and then uh, but we still had that, you know, an interest in like treating the things that we're treating with uh, with respect, I guess, and like trying to not play them at least in their darker aspects for um, shock value. And I, I, you know, I don't know that we necessarily struck a good balance with that, but definitely that was, um, you know, a guiding factor. And it's the same reason why the game does not have any non-diegetic uh puzzle or situations of sorts like we never have the you know play the piano in the right combination to open the door and uh, place the jewel in the eye of the statue yep. because that <laughs> if you do that that you can't you can't you know ask for your players to be serious about the stuff that you're telling them and there's nothing yeah. then and, and we so we did that and then we also try to put 
layering of like historical accuracy to what was happening around the world in Italy at the time so that, you know, it would ground these personal stories in reality. And even if they are traditionally horror in many aspects, you would still relate to them, you know, on a more realistic, uh, more, uh, I don't know, like sincere uh, level, I guess. Because I think I found, particularly with the characters from the past history, like you said, there's mm -hmm. like two timelines going on. They're very conflicting in terms of they're not good people, they're not bad people, they're just people who did things and that's kind of triggered off the chain of events and whatnot. And I found that I like characters like that where it's not just they were good or they were bad. It's kind of it's got they've got layers to them and they felt like particularly with Bruno and that kind of story, when I kind of actually pieced it together and made sense of it, I was like that's really nicely told because now I've got like a whole picture of it and I've not been told any of this. I've had to infer it and put a bit of my own understanding to get there. Um, and I really like that kind of immersive storytelling of it's there, but you have to find it. We're not just going to dish it out to you. You've got to try and figure it out and move through it. Yeah. And it's yeah. part of, it's part of the game as well, right? Like it, it's not just um, the story, but the story is the game through the pieces that you're finding, the puzzles that you're solving. Um, and especially like the main characters, they're not um, they're not victims in the situation. They are survivors that do more or less get their closure with whatever topic is being tackled um, in the situation. Um, uh, I don't have a follow-up question to that. That was kind of just my two, two pence uh, <laughs> worth of that conversation. Just kind of wanted to throw that out there. Um, yeah. I think... Well, I'll, I'll go back to some of the difficulty in the game and kind of the difficulty options that you had. Um, I think you've made you've struck a balance here with like kind of the accessibility of playing it. Uh, you can kind of make it as hard as you want if you really want to, um, but kind of the the sort of accessibility options kind of do make it, um, I guess, easier for a lot a broader audience, but at the same time still keeping that um that same horror element to it uh, of actually kind of still trying to survive um is this another kind of thing with the qa kind of with the whole stress testing thing that they kind of said look these kind of the options would kind of help a lot through uh a game say kind of like the matches being infinite and stuff like that like the resources not going down um is that kind of uh sort of the feedback that you got on how to keep it accessible while still um horrifying oh my god i hope you can cut these from this <laughs> don't worry we'll edit them for you <laughs> um again great question um so it's a combination of of two things uh, in in general we we've always been um driven by accessibility as a concept to widen you know the amount and diversity of people that can access our games. Uh, in, 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 in Wheels of Rally, again, our previous game, we even have an achievement if you finish the game without ever touching the controller. Because <laughs> kind of like the game kind of like plays awesome. itself. Well, I've definitely to, got that because I've played it. <laughs> I've, got the, <laughs> I've got the Platinum Trophy, so I definitely played it without doing anything. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and you know, and before that, you know, Photonica is a game that we made. Like, we we wondered if we could make a game that you could, you know, have complex interactions with just one button. So it's always been on our mind uh, how to make things uh, accessible and 
also to widen like, the potentially widen the reach of the game to people that are not necessarily game enthusiasts. And you know, with Saturnalia, since it it is you know an established gamer um, genre, right? And mm -hmm. it use, you know, it, it, for example, it uses uh, dual analog controls, right? You have to walk with one and look around with the other, and that's very intimidating uh, for some players. And and a variety of interactions. So we we did a lot of thinking in terms of controls and how to keep them minimal and accessible and how many things we could do, you know, behind the scenes for players to help them navigate and play the game if they were not experienced players. And some of the stuff is just like there in the game, no matter what difficulty level you're playing, but some stuff is really very much tied to, you know, how challenging the game becomes in, in, the, in the different situations. And, you know, stuff like, uh, you know, stamina management and, you know, uh, resources management again. It's like more of like a gamery mechanics that you know newcomers to the genre don't necessarily enjoy or like, or they don't have to learn uh, to to play the game. But then, and those were like you know from the start, like we knew that we could you know create accessibility features for those things. But um, I would say that the biggest design challenge of the entire game has been managing the orienteering aspect of it right mm. because again yeah you we have to make you <laughs> get lost but also give you enough tools so that you can you know play the game and find the stuff that you're looking for so through that we did a lot like uh, technological and design experimentation in the game technological uh for example we we wanted to have realistic uh, signage in the village so they would tell you, hey, go left to go to the pharmacy, but that left is not, uh, you know, uh, line line of air. I don't know what's the English expression uh, when you you know just drawing a straight line between two points, and you're yeah. not we're not pointing to that point, but we're calculating the quickest road as you would actually do when you're putting down signage in a in a yeah. medieval village to tell people where where to go. And so we had to develop the technology for that. And then we had to develop the pathfinding for the NPCs to, to, to navigate the village. And so once we had that, we were like, hey, what if you know the other characters that you can play around, you can play with and you could team up with, they, what if they can lead you to places? So we built that mechanic of like going to the map and asking a character where something is and they will start walking, you can follow them. Also taken from uh, Shenmue to on the Dreamcast. Oh. Uh, and you know, and these, and and then once we had that, we're like, hey, what if you know we just had an option that you don't even need to do that, but your character will automatically go where you need to go, and that became an accessibility option. So it was a matter of like, you know, yes, evaluating playtesting and see where people are getting frustrated, and also evaluating the technology that we would need to make things easier, and if there was stuff that we were already making for other parts of the game that we could reuse. To make the game more accessible, I I did try a run on permadeath, and it was honestly it, my heart couldn't even take it. It was too much. <laughs> it amplifies it so much when you know you don't even get a second chance. So yeah, think, it's horrible. <laughs> I think having all those custom sliders is really great, and it just gives people the option of like, I want to have a bit of challenge, but I want to still have the matches. You know, it just allows people to play it how they feel they're able to, and I think that's a really nice thing to have in the game. Um, 
I did wonder, did you ever consider like a combat system of some kind, like to fight off the creature? I know obviously Paul has his ability to kind of save you at the last moment with his camera, but I wondered if like the creature would have like some kind of combat or the player would get some options to fight back at it, or whether that was always the intention from the start where you don't have those options. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's an idea we we always kind of like joked about and and thought about in that terms. Like there was a time at the beginning of development where we would shop for publishers, and we have had some publishers ask like, "Wait, why don't you add shotguns to the game?" <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and at that point, we're like, you're talking about like a couple hundred thousand dollars to finish your game. You'll be like, "Yep, yeah, we, we could we could." <laughs> We could add shotguns. <laughs> Just a Nisa with a shotgun against this creature. If you feel strongly about it. Um, but yeah, no, from the start, the game was never... It was always imagined like as a, as a monster labyrinth kind of game where you're just, you're just running away and there is no player-enacted violence because that's also something that I uh, feel... It feel it's difficult to do tastefully um and you know the the usual there's the usual video game representation of violence like i don't want to get into the blue narrative right. dissonance discourse here but <laughs> it's kind of like inevitable like when you when you're giving someone the option to kill um then well, how do you justify it and what does it mean in the fiction of the game and with a game that had all that you know realism in it that we were talking about before, right? Yeah. You know, avoiding the puzzle and all that. Having you, you know, uh, shooting a gun and finding uh, ammos around, um, it just wouldn't. And and what would happen to the creature? Like mm -hmm. even you know, as you what you know about the creature at the end of the game, how does that? How how does yeah. any of that work? And there, you know, then you would have to have you know different. Uh, I guess threats that are not the creature, but that kind of like takes away from the meaning of all you know the relationship between the creature and the horror of the game and the, you know, the actual horror of the village and what happens in the village. So I think there was no easy way to make it make it happen, you know, in a in a tasteful, meaningful way. But you know that doesn't mean that we wouldn't in the future maybe like play around with like a, an optional mode like this more arcadian where you're shooting things but you know uh, it doesn't really mode. fit yeah 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 fit with the with i guess with, with the with the theme and the feel and the feeling of the game and then yeah there is like that usual you know star wars marvel uh thing where you have these enemies that are faceless and they have no like why are they evil we don't know why do they do it we don't know we just shoot them we just They're kill just them they don't guys. have a name they don't have a family <laughs> there's no just go and kill them there's nothing here i need to worry about and yeah that's really like something that, that i think we should um try and stay away from I, I really did feel that and i kind of was on my second playthrough i think it was when i was playing and i thought I'm really glad they didn't go down that road and that the only option I have is with one character. Every other character is really vulnerable. I think, like you said, it adds to the sense of like the immersion and the sense of like your place within this world controlling these characters. And yeah, the idea of running around as like Paul with a shotgun just seems completely wild. Um, so yeah, I think I, I very much appreciate that decision. It was nice to not have a combat focused style of game in this way. Was there um I guess 
off that having no combat and kind of um your sort of thoughts on on non-combative uh gameplay is it was there any games um before going into saturnalia that you kind of had uh people play as kind of homework or was there movies that you kind of thought before we do this have some hammer some of this for kind of like to learn where we want what we kind of want to aim for <laughs> so much stuff I don't know in particular, like regarding to uh, avoiding player combat, but you know, I guess to me, uh, Soma by Frictional Games was probably the game that you know, I love. So really, show like that combination, like exploration, puzzle solving, evading really scary monsters, and like not having to fight with them. But you know, there is a uh, like a, a whole tradition. Of, of, of horror games, I'm thinking about D2 on the Dreamcast. Uh, it does have like these RPG random encounters combat. They're not integrated into the exploration gameplay uh, that work really well, at least to me. It's like <laughs> the way you, you know, you can sort of like remove them uh, from your hand. And like even when I think about you know the classics uh, of the era, Silent Hill, you know, the combat part of it is just really. Look, I know that the game has combat in it, but when I think about the game, I never think uh, about the combat. Contrary to something like like Resident Evil Four, where like the action and the combat is such like an important an important part of it. And yeah, for sure. Um, as they said, like um, many people on the team were not necessarily uh, video game players, so we and, and and we you know we talk about games and so we show them games, but there was no forced <laughs> playthroughs sure. uh, <laughs> of anything, <laughs> nor forced, uh, you know, um, uh, watching of movies. But, you know, sure. we, we knew we had, you know, the, uh, uh, a shared frame of Italian cinema and, you know, your Dario Argentos and Bava's. And, you know, we, we were all uh, familiar with Wicker Man and you know, right. there are some you know shared uh, sources that we could you know point to, and everybody would know what we we're talking about in terms yeah. of looks, etc. Yeah, awesome. I I also was really interested. I, I kind of mentioned like the clues screen and how effective I think that is as like a really succinct and efficient way of demonstrating a lot of information, like a really easy to navigate way. <clears throat> and I also thought about how across my different runs I've tackled the objectives in basically completely different ways depending on where I ended up at what time and um, however my village was laid out for that run and I wondered how much of a nightmare that must have been to be able to program and to be able to build that the village can move and contort in so many ways and change but you can also do the story across this village in so many different ways with different characters and in my head, I was like, how, and like, there must be some kind of wizardry that you managed to pull off to make that technically actually work. And I just, yeah, I was just interested how you'd actually managed to pull off all those different colliding elements. So there was a lot of um, design planning in terms of like, so like dividing all the information that the players needed to understand to get an idea of what happened within each of the many storylines that happened in the game. <clears throat> and then we would uh, turn this information into environmental storytelling, dialogue units, um, and uh, uh, you know stuff you can find, and information that is tied to the stuff that you can find. Um, and then we would go through it and make sure that it would make sense 
independently to what you've learned before and it would you know add additional information that would explain other stuff but never spoil things and uh, and you know up till the release of the game we would have situations where like hey i find this and this character is calling this item so and so but they couldn't know at this point <laughs> if you hadn't done this and this that, that that's the name of the character and then we had to you know, i think a couple of items we even had to fix uh localizations because they okay. were so late that we caught them. Uh, they were like <laughs> minor stuff that maybe I, I guess most people wouldn't notice on a playthrough, but because you know, you always have that 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 feeling of like, hey, why is this call like this? Uh, and yeah, I must have missed something. Mm -hmm. But to us, uh, it's very obvious that you shouldn't have that bit of information at that point in the game, right? So yeah, uh, yeah, there was a lot of planning and also a lot of play testing and trying different combinations, but. You know the permutations are really endless so yeah. we uh you know we sort of like when when i talk about dialogue units uh what usually happens is we, we know we have a bit of information uh, about a character you know uh, something about their past or something that they discover and then we turn that in a dialogue unit which means uh, we explain the dialogue within which this information is given to the player and then we write all the iterations you know, uh, if they know who died, if they know who the killer was, if they know where the, the assassination happened, if they, if they know why, and then this dialogue is written in all these variants for all the characters. Wow. <laughs> and That's so impressive. we have like this <laughs> massive screenplay and then there's an AI that basically checks all this right. stuff and pulls yeah. up the right, the right line for the right character at the right time so that it, it wow. feels coherent. So even if the story is non-branching, yeah, the way that is explained and the way that it plays for you can can change drastically because, as you said, you can there is no beginning of the game puzzles and end of the game puzzles. It can happen all in in any order. Um, so yeah, that's that's how we went through it. And then, of course, as influenced the way we handled what we call the recollection menu, <clears throat> yeah, which are where all the nodes are. Yeah. And we at the beginning we wanted to make it just a list. A list okay. of things. <laughs> and then we quickly figured out that was not gonna help people yep. together. So we we wanted to highlight how when things are connected, either because they're related to a character, related to a location, is the location where you found the item, you know, and there are no explicit strict rules, but mm -hmm. we kind of like applied what makes more sense uh for you to kind of like piece things together and that has just been you know through testing and through you know having someone play asking them hey what do you think this and this why do you think that happened why do you what do you think this object means and like here whenever there was some misunderstanding or uh, maybe even connections that we hadn't thought about mm -hmm. but but very early on we knew we had to separate you know documents and things and and three-dimensional objects that you can find compared to, because we I, like I, I personally hate, um, you know, the immersive sim uh, trick of like finding logs and having like all these yeah. long yeah. exposures <laughs> of like why exposition things have dumps. happened. Exposition dumps. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Uh, and, and I didn't want to have that in the game. So very early on, we decided we were never going to have more than. 100, 150 characters 
of text on the screen anytime. Mm -hmm. uh, so that it didn't really limit us what we could say in the dialogue, what we could place in this document. So maybe even if you find, you know, a page of a diary that is, you know, a full page of someone writing in Italian something, what we give you as a player is just the three most interesting lines from that. So that, you know, you never had that feeling of, you, because we don't want people to skip that stuff. Because if they mm. if if they started engaging with it, you yeah. know, if you don't want to engage with it, fine. We've made the game so you can skip all the story stuff. But it'd be a tragedy if you wanted to get into it and then you get discouraged by the amount of text that we yeah. show you. So uh, we try to keep it super light and make it sort of like easier to like create connections between items, even if you know there is hundreds of them. So it's still gonna be overwhelming but yeah again it's one of the things where we, we, we more than 50 percent of the design effort was like trying to keep things uh manageable yeah i think that was i just imagine this ever expanding spreadsheet of like potential options and i was like, i have no idea how you bring this in but well well done for doing it <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess that's kind of like the bulk of the questions we've got really um uh, firstly, I, I want to say thank you for coming along uh, and talking to us and letting us ask you questions, pick your brain. Um, obviously, you've told us about the game that you've got coming out, which has come out this week. Um, is Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Tell us what it's about. Well, uh, first of all, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It was, it was really fun to talk about this stuff. Uh, it's nice to be like, like, like uh a non-promotional open conversation about the design uh, yeah. aspect of it all. Um, so the, the the game that that I that I was uh, telling you about is actually a game I worked on for a different company that I uh, freelance as a producer for. They're called Big Trouble, and they're the spin-off from the board game industry that I was telling you about for oh, yeah. Horrible Guild. So they open this new uh, game design studio. Uh, where I'm, I, I'm, you know, managing the the production, and we just made this uh, single player adaptation of one of their narrative board games called The King's Dilemma, and it's this medieval uh, political simulation through choices on political dilemmas. So you explore this map, and you have these different questions, and then you have a council of houses that want. To take a decision, and then you have to either overrule or you know go with their choice, and then it evolves the story. And um, it was a very nice change of pace, a really fun project to work with, especially because you know the, the original game is this multiplayer uh, conversational game where you have to debate oh. to make choices, and then the single player version is just you. Oh, so cool. we had to have you know give you, you know a long term objective so that everything would make sense as you were. Uh, going through it and also, you know, making the choices interesting when you actively have all the power to choose what you want, right? So it was an interesting, an interesting you know, design challenge like that. But uh, with Santa Ragione, we are working on uh, two new games um, that are unannounced and that are within the line of um, the co-productions that we're doing. Um, okay. A year and a half ago, we published this game called uh, The Milky Way Prince, uh, The Vampire Star. And th that game uh, was directed, mm, <laughs> designed, and mm, scored, and drawn, uh, and written by a single person, um, Lorenzo Redaelli, 
as this uh, Italian wow. young Italian creator, and they had made this uh, this really beautiful autobiographical uh, visual novel about um, uh, a relationship with 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 a borderline partner. Uh, okay, and. Um, and so we, we we saw the game, we're like, this this thing is really special, but the person that was making it, uh, even even if they were extremely talented, they had no idea how to like turn what they had into, you know, a, a, a commercial product. So there's all, yeah. you know, the, the save state, the controllers, <laughs> the options, so. resolution handling. And then we also helped them with, you know, editing and like proofreading with a native English speaker that could, you know, help more like define the language because they're, they're also Italian. And so we can like help with the production or like getting the rights for, you know, some of the three yard that is uh, you know, licensed in the game and stuff like that. And we put together a package and we, and we, and we released it to, uh, we did some marketing for it, et cetera. Uh, so a bit more, like, um, a bit more than than a publisher. We were like working together with the development for, of the game for like a year and a half. That sounds um, great. And so we're doing that for two new projects, also by cool. you know up and coming uh, creators, and we will you know announce them later this year if everything goes well. Well, I think you'll have a, a group of people who will definitely be looking out for that over at our website. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've gone on about this game for so much. Um, I also just wanted to reiterate, you know, I reading some of the other reviews, obviously we've spoken about it was my game of the year. I adore this game. I think it's phenomenal. Um, but I saw some other reviews as well. And the discourse from what I saw was generally quite universally positive and I think fully earned and fully deserved. And I've always wondered what it's like to see some of that feedback after you spent you spent five years on Saturnalia so I just wondered what it was like to get that feedback now that you'd released it into the world and just to see that kind of response what it was like for yourself and the team um it was um I was <laughs> well that's a really hard question to answer because when you <laughs> uh this has been a six year long project it, it took so much longer than we hoped because you know we we didn't have money to finish the project for a very long time so the project went on for two years where just like two people were working on it sort of like wow. part time and then uh and at one point we had like 40 people working on it wow <laughs> uh, it's yeah it and you know it changed a bunch it started off as a first person game it was a very rational and experimental, uh, both in the way we design it and the way we developed it. And so, and then of course, COVID happened. And then at the end of it, you know, uh, <laughs> it's really hard to express like the emotions of having it out and, you know, seeing that people connect to it in, with, with aspects that we at that point weren't even sure about. Because, you know, mm. now I can talk about this stuff also because, you know, I've been, you know, doing lots of, uh, lots of reading of reviews of like of things that I'm repeating that I've read. <laughs> yeah. No, but as well, like interviews and like chatting about the game after the game has helped me, you know, like, you know, elaborating on some of this stuff on it. So it's been, it's been really therapeutic in that sense. Uh, but of course, as you can imagine, like any, any critique is like is way more impactful, unfortunately, than any praise because of just course. because I guess the way uh, many of us are wired, uh, I, I I guess. But I can't 
you know, I'm extremely happy with how the game was received, and I'm and I'm happy to see everyone that you know can has found you know has noticed you know the love that was put into it, and as you know, and especially uh, I I appreciate the most when I, when I read about you know, people that are um, sort of like maybe a little bored with, with games and, and they think that the tower game does a lot of new stuff. Uh, yeah. I'm particularly happy with because that was kind of like the idea and the place we were coming from. Like, let's, yeah, like we're making a genre game, but let's try and change. And that, there is no shame in it. Let's try to mm-hmm. change as many things as we can. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, let's see, and, see, <laughs> and see what happens for the sake of it. Like, I, I know that people are opposed to this line of thinking, but it was very much, you know, one of the guidance. For the project, so when when people reacted positively to to that, that was very you know was uh, very fulfilling, very uh, pleasant. Fantastic! I'm really pleased because I know from my perspective, I want I really wanted this game to get a lot of love, and I I can see just how much passion and love went into it in so many aspects. And like I said, for a horror game to surprise me and to immerse me so effectively is rare. Like very few games have managed to do that for me, and yeah i just i was really glad to hear that you know the, the feedback was positive because i had an amazing time with the game and like i said i obviously got the review copy and i reviewed that and then i went and bought it on playstation so i could play it all again so yeah i just want to say thanks for making an amazing game and coming on and joining us because it's been like it's been really really good to, oh, to play thank you for playing it <laughs> not at all Alrighty, so that was Pietro. First of all, just want to say, one absolutely lovely human being spending his time to come on with us for an evening and chat about it, and he was so nice about everything. Um, Josh, I just wanted to like kind of sort of quickly debrief just kind of what you took from it. Like, I found loads of really cool bits from what he was saying. It was really interesting. So I just wondered what you've taken from it. Um, I think, I think it's mainly the kind of just um, the intentions behind how they wanted to go about the story and characters was quite quite eye-opening mm. i think um obviously we, when we play games we play them as a game and we kind of like like you said i think when you did your first playthrough you kind of didn't ignore it but you didn't soak it in because of obviously it's fucking shit scary <laughs> yeah. so, so we're kind of just like <laughs> we're just like just fumbling in the dark just trying to get out of the place not just learn about everything um but i feel like you know like the comp when when you threw in the combat question mm-hmm. and his design philosophy of that and kind of like i was thinking like yeah like the monster is a real person at the end of the day like they're not a they're not the human form that they are now yeah. but by the end of it we know where they came from what they did why they're like what they are yeah um and it kind of bled into the present day characters that we kind of meet and kind of their adversaries internally and externally through kind of how they're hated in their own ways that they overcome it by the end as well. Um, and it just makes, it just makes that an alia, like not just like a good survival horror game, but a really great story to experience with how they formatted it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think, learning about their process of of so many different iterations like you said like there were 10 characters originally and then they ended up with four and you know just learning about all the backstory because we only get to see the finished product and Mm -hmm. what a game looks like in its final form and it's such a shame that you don't get like to know how many iterations how many changes it's gone through and all that kind of stuff 
and I, I'm just fascinated by how they managed to incorporate like the roguelike element of the village like you said it was on like an octagonal kind of system of like they just kind of rotate around but obviously then you have infinite combinations of stuff that can happen there um and the mine question was funny because obviously when i so for people who are listed after i'd played through and reviewed the game i also watched josh's broadcast of him playing it so that we could get the full experience because i knew what was going to happen and he didn't and Every time you had to go down into the mines, you had this constant kind of terror about not wanting to do it. And it was just really funny watching you go through that same kind of feeling and process that I did of whenever I had to go down. I was like, fuck, I really don't want to have to do it again. Um, And to hear that actually it wasn't like an intentional design choice per se. It was more of like like a happy coincidence of all the things they wanted to inject into like a new area, make it separate, give it like a different gameplay feel. It's just so interesting that for them it was a happy coincidence, but for me it felt like the developers had like purposely designed this thing to make my life hellish. <laughs> and I think that's like the beauty and the magic of game development that we as players get to experience something that has come out maybe completely differently from how it was originally intended, but has ended up anyway. Um, and I've just found that really fascinating to find out more about just their process of doing that. Yeah, I didn't want to tell him because I didn't want to have like an anecdote and not follow it up with a question because I was, <laughs> I've done it once, I can't do it again. <laughs> I had my one where I was just like, yeah, I just wanted to say that. Um, yeah. uh, but the mines, it's like in real life, but you know, when you've got like an abandoned house at like the end of the street or something that no yeah, one's been yeah. in, but it pertains to all the secrets, like the mines gives you some of the biggest plot points in the game. Mm. Um, so like whether you like it or not, like as interesting it might that abandoned house might look like you don't want to go in, but you have to. If yeah. you want to find the secrets, if you want to progress, you have to. So like, yeah, it just felt like that. Like you kind of like it's a place you know is like scary. You know, uh, you know, in real life you you shouldn't be in there. But like, it's a game, it's a bit different. You have to go in there. Absolutely. You just have no choice. And yeah, it's, I think Sandalia captures it the most with just the way like it moves like the village around the fact that you've got these characters, they have different abilities of what they can and can't do. So you have to use all of them regardless of wanting to use Paul because he's the only one who can defend himself to some degree. Um, yeah, it's it's really wonderful that they managed to piece together a game. And he said there was such a small team as well. You know, he said maximum 40 people at one stage. But to have only two people working on this project and somehow still get it to this kind of state with so many unique selling points about it, it's pretty special. So, yeah, I think we could both agree we uh, thoroughly enjoyed our time with it. And Pietro was absolutely lovely to come on and speak about it as well. Um, did you have any other kind of closing thoughts? Anything else that you kind of just took from it at all? No, just just that this has uh, given me a deeper appreciation of the game. Yeah, <laughs> tenfold. Like, uh, yeah. I, yeah, I loved it. Loved it when it came out. I just love that. Uh, I hopefully, like, we can be like the front running champions to say like Saturnalia brought this new thing to horror. Yeah. Like, and that new thing is the roguelike element of like. There's no safety in it. There's no no knowledge of kind of the level design because it's all going to change always um so hopefully you know going forward like i don't want play games to copy it as Mm. such but i hope that philosophy in the design 
comes through into like future horror titles. Hundred percent. Just imagine like a PT, but with roguelike elements where everything keeps shifting all the time. Exactly. Oh, awful, but amazing at the same time. But yeah, wonderful, wonderful game. Um, if you've listened through this far, thank you very much for uh, sticking with it and listening through it. We hope you've enjoyed it just as much as we have. I think I may have fangirled a little bit, and I'm not afraid to kind of admit that I was quite uh, <laughs> quite excited for this we, one. We definitely indulged, didn't we, by <laughs> getting to speak to him? Absolutely, yeah. It's been quite a quite an exciting thing for us to look forward to this podcast. So, yeah, we're really grateful for the opportunity, and thank you to Santa Rajoni for an amazing game, and to Pietro for his time to come and speak to us about it, and for you, the listener, for listening in and putting up with our questions and whatnot. So, in terms of that, right, Josh, this is the key bit. I have to get the outro right. Do you think I can do it today? Am I going to nail it, or am I going to get the last word wrong again? Oh, I didn't know you had to do the outro. You know, I was oh, thought, this yeah. is a different pod. This is no. a different side pod, but no, no, you've got, you've got it this time. It's just read it word. <laughs> just read it. Just read it word for word, and uh, and just line. Yeah, word for word. Don't don't overread. You know, <laughs> what you're saying is what you're reading. Just do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, or just ross it and just come at like have it on tap with your brain. Oh, I tried that though, and then I messed up the last word. And I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. But this is the <laughs> one. I can feel it. I'm channeling the energy. And if I don't get it, we're going to edit it out and I'll do it again anyway. And then I'll have to do it nine times a time. I just get it right. But I digress. So that is it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all very much for listening. Don't forget, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us absolutely everywhere. Just go to the link tree in the description below where you can find us in all the places. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can at FNGRGNS. And if you'd like to follow us individually, all of our handles are in the description below, except for myself, of course, because apparently I'm smart and not on Twitter. If you really really like what we do, why not follow our Patreon for just $1 a month? You can keep this podcast live on its various podcast hosting services and keep the website nice and shiny. But that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all very much for listening. It is goodbye from myself, Miles Thompson, and it is goodbye from my finger guns twin brother, Joshua. Not related, but goodbye. (laughs) Brothers, but not related in any way. (laughs) We'll see you next time on the Finger Guns podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this spoiler special about Saturnalia, the game of the year 2022, and I will hear no other answer. (laughs) Oh, yeah.